Miracy. When we are in integrity, when we are aligned, when we have a product that is serving people, it is right and good and holy for us to draw attention to ourselves, to our business. Hello, I'm Katie Valentine, and you're listening to Soul Savvy Business. I'm a soul-minded spiritual entrepreneur, Christian minister, and a New Testament scholar, but don't let that scare you. I support all paths to the divine, and I use tools like chakras, dreams, and intuition to get there. On this podcast, we explore the intersection of business and spirituality. What do I mean by that? Too often, we separate our business selves from our spiritual selves. But in doing that, we don't leverage the full potential of either one. This series aims to help you fall in love with your own soul so that you can live your most successful and fulfilling life. On this episode, I'll be talking with a writer and author's coach who helps spiritually attuned go-getters write, market, and sell their books. I also happen to know her personally, and you are in for a high vibration treat with a savvy spiritual businesswoman. But first... In every episode, I offer a tip around abundance and your spiritual journey. Today's tip is about your physical space. Whether you do your work at a desk at home, at an office away from home, or on your couch, putting something in your working space that consciously and subconsciously reminds you of abundance is an awesome way to keep that energy flowing. Right now, I have a little herbal bouquet that makes me very happy, and it reminds me of the abundance of the earth. And that abundance includes money, but is not limited to money. You could choose a plant, a crystal, even a picture of money or a check that's written out to yourself. My herbal bouquet signals to me that the earth's abundance is evergreen and never failing. It's also small, portable, and takes very little effort on my part. Just like herbs grow without my assistance, abundance is also plentiful in the universe, fully ready for me to cultivate it in my own house. All I need to do is to create a space for it on my desk. My guest today is Meg Calvin. Meg is actually a former client of mine. She's also a former minister in the Mainline Protestant Church. Today, she is a rock star and a writing coach who helps spiritually attuned go-getters write, market, and sell their books. I've known Meg for a few years now, and about two years ago, I was lucky enough for her to work with me in her spiritual journey. I was able to witness her transition into a full-time writing coach, and I love seeing her dreams come true. Now, we do get to work together a little bit, and I've sent several people her way to get coaching in their writing. And of course, they all rave about her. Welcome to the show, Meg. Yay. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here with you and your listeners. This is so amazing. I'm really curious, Meg, did anything resonate with you in today's tip on creating space for abundance in your work area or on your desk? 100% resonated. Yes, I have crystals and feathers. I have leaves on my desk, things that I bring in from the outside world. That earth energy that you teach about in Awakening and Transformation really resonates with me. Then I have family photos of ancestors that have gone on that have mentored me. And 
yes, it all plays a huge role in, in reminding me of, of the abundance all around me. How big is your desk? I know. That's a really good question. It's one of those 70, 80-year-old roll-top ones that my husband got in an antique store. It is a beast. I am incredibly envious, but in a really healthy way, mm-hmm. because I have now a very tiny desk in my very tiny space in Europe. And <laughs> that is not a complaint, because I love where I live. Right. I just don't have the big L-shaped desk for the room for everything. Mm-hmm. So just the little herbal bouquet. What about the feathers? What do those mean to you right now? Oh, that's a good question. Like like all Katie Valentine questions. That is a good one. <laughs> I have read that a black feather presenting itself to you on your day means that someone that has crossed over to whatever lies beyond, whatever we believe about that, to what is next for that person, that soul, that if a black feather shows up, he or she or they is reaching out to you. And that has meant a lot as a person I love dearly. My, my second mom, my aunt crossed over in January of 2020. And so I, every time I see, it started out just black feathers, but then I began to notice other feathers. And so I picked them up and I used them. They were just laying on my desk. But then after seeing the movie <laughs> where the crawdads sing, she decorates with them with string draped across her house. And so I did that on my office window. Ooh. Oh my goodness. That sounds just delicious. And I love your working with the ancestors behind you supporting you. Oh yes, 100%. So Meg, since you're a former minister, I know our listeners are going to be curious. How would you describe what you consider the divine? What word or words do you use for that right now? The first one that dropped on my head when you asked that question was feminine, was very beautifully dynamic, organic, messy in the best way, spontaneous, nurturing, receptive, creative, sexy, alluring, attractive, captivating woos me. I think of the womb. Yeah, I think of lots of maternal or, or words that we would label as more effeminate that came to mind. And as one who spent a lot of my life with the, the masculine energy leading the way and having a very impressive resume, it has been a joy since <laughs> studying with you to become integrated and reading feminist theology and letting the mother God nurture me and knowing when to lead even in my business whether it's the bookkeeping or the sales calls or the marketing or the, one, the one-on-one coaching or working with people I'm contracting out with, knowing that even in those spaces, it's good and effective to show up in my divine feminine side too. I love just everything you said. And it sounds like you're using divine feminine words in your relationship with the divine, but you're also embodying that. Mm, yes, 100. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And that's been very freeing coming from early on in my life. I would wear sports bras and scarves when I would preach because I'm a very curvy woman and I would hide that part of me. I'd be afraid I would tempt someone or distract someone from the message that I was preaching with all my authority. So it's been really freeing and healing to to bring all of myself to my to my business, including my curvy body and physique. This is one time when I can definitely say like burning the bra is is Mm. a good thing. So true. Yeah, to live into your full self. Well, tell us a little bit about that religious upbringing that you had where somehow you got the message to hide. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am so thankful that my relationship with a church, definitely when I was a child, was very healing. And I was always attracted to church, saying I was very fortunate on an army base in Germany, I was the only Caucasian person. I was six in an all African-American choir. And that was my introduction to worship. 
and movement, just moving with your whole body when you worshiped. And I definitely met, like, I love the story you tell about yourself listening to the Bible as a kid and how your intuition was leading the way, even as a kid, as it does. And that was definitely my experience as a six-year-old was I experienced the palpable presence of a God that knows us, that loves us, that is always at work healing us. And I needed that as a six-year-old desperately. And I, I felt that. So that led to an addiction to the church and a call to ministry that was greatly nurtured. So even as a woman, I was pushed toward the pulpit as a 13-year-old and was visiting seminaries as a 15-year-old from male and female mentors. There was so much fruit from that, and I'm thankful how it served me. I think that there were stories, though, about how curvy I was when I developed. Stories from my family and some youth directors that I definitely needed to hide that. And, um, and I started, I think, combining the message of the lessons in youth group about my very voluptuous body and how a woman couldn't be sexy and also an authority figure like, whoa, we can't have that in the church. Pair that with a lot of wounds around sexual abuse in, in my family and women who have breasts, who have big breasts, women who are sexy get hurt. And so we must hide that at all costs to protect you. So there were those messages that I've been fortunate to heal over the years and embrace all, all, the, part, all the parts of me. What was the major catalyst for you for rewriting that story? There are so many things that come to my mind right now. Okay, the loudest one that, that I'm feeling right now is I had to go to the pit of my pain and the pit of my feelings. I had to forgive those that, didn't, that I loved with every cell in my body who didn't protect other people in my family. I had to go to the pits of my pain and feel all the emotions and then empathize and then forgive. And we all have different words for this, whether it's epigenetics or whether it's ancestral drama, those are probably the same thing. <laughs> but I definitely had energy of past family wounds that I was carrying and that I had to move that energy. And your work was so helpful in that process, being a student at Awakening and Transformation. There were moments in Awakening and Transformation that, whether it was through discussion boards or on the Facebook group or Zooming with you or you guiding us through transcendental, like really deep meditational moments where I got to deeply connect with my ancestors who have crossed over. And that was, that was very powerful. And then, oh, the shadow work side was another big catalyst. And you've probably heard the saying, what we resist persists. And so because of the stories from being a teenager in the South and Southern Belle culture where every day is a beauty pageant and you need to, you need to make sure you look beautiful, but not too beautiful. Living in that culture paired with a Bible Belt culture, I was always told to not draw attention to myself and to not be too charming. God forbid, be too charming. And so that would be my shadow work because I was resisting that. And then as I started to grow my business, I had to become a master at marketing. And what is marketing at its core? <laughs> it is drawing attention to yourself. Right. And so I got to get over that limit, do the shadow work and get over the limiting belief of that, that when we are in, in integrity, when we are aligned, when we are, we have a product that is serving people, it is right and good and holy for us to draw attention to ourselves, to our business. So those two things, going to the depths of my pain, empathizing, forgiving, letting myself be pissed off, letting myself be sad, transmuting that energy, and then also shadow work were huge catalysts. And you were a great 
part of that journey for me, that pivot catalyst. Oh, I'm so glad. And, you know, I I mean, it's always an honor to be a part of anyone's journey. And then for you to be able to claim all of that and really claim your ancestors and claim the divine feminine in your life, what a joy. And it's bringing you to this place of mindful marketing and drawing attention to yourself in the best way possible. And and look at it. You're serving the world Mm -hmm. now. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Meg's profound realizations and journey about the sacred worth of her body, her sexuality, and her gender hit home with me. Female and femme bodies are definitely subjected to a lot of scrutiny, which is no surprise. But many of us internalize this scrutiny in ways that hide who we really are. Meg's journey is one where she encountered the sacredness of her own body. When she embraced that, she also embraced the divine feminine. A lot of Western religious culture promotes the masculine, father, son, he, him. This isn't wrong, but it's also incomplete. But the hidden threads of the divine feminine are in fact there. It may surprise you to know that the Holy Spirit in Christianity has usually been thought of as a she. One of my favorite stories of Jesus is when he compares God to a mother hen. In fact, I work with the divine feminine a lot. The knowledge that God is more than gender, but also includes femininity. But it took me a long time to overcome my own internalization of the hyper-masculine to be able to work with this energy in my own life. In fact, I recently taught a short course on the Divine Feminine for Jesus followers. You may want to check that out in the show notes. It was amazing to witness others, mostly women, embrace the Divine Feminine in new ways. When we connect to the Divine Feminine, we also connect to our own sacred worth. And that goes for all genders. Part of what I love to help people do is to connect to their own sacred worth through their gender and their gender identity and their gender expression. And when we do that, we connect to the Divine that is part of all gender expressions, creativity, and identity. I'm so grateful to Meg for sharing her truths around her own gender journey, her expression, the divine feminine, and for sharing that with us in this vulnerable space. Meg, have your spiritual beliefs ever influenced the way you think or feel about money or abundance? Yes, yes, definitely. I was definitely in, until about two years ago, had the mindset that it was pious of me to be poor. And it was pious of me to have low quality things. So yes, 100%. And I'm thankful that <laughs> thankful that, that has shifted as well. <laughs> well, what influenced that to begin with? My definition of money changed in that it simply now is instead of being something other than that of God, it holds energy and we put different energy, we put a different value to it. It just, it, it simply holds energy. And that can be a really a high vibe energy or a very, whatever adjective we want to use, dense, dense feels good, dense vibe to it. And so coming to terms with what my business offers is truly life-changing for my clients. And I'm so thankful to God and to the universe and to my guides to leading me to serve in the way I do. And because I help people who have amazingly healing and effective books to write, because I I help them serve people with those books, and I believe raise the vibes of the collective consciousness and serve all their readers, all the good things that comes from that, it is not only okay, 
they're there, it's justifiable that there's a monetary value exchange for that value that I'm providing for them. And so that was a huge shift for me. And then coming back to the divine feminine, I can say that's a huge shift for me. And at the same time, be totally comfortable and okay with my prices being less than others in the game. And when it's uh, like, sometimes you'll hear what someone else offers, or you'll go here at a workshop house or a conference, how much someone got paid. And it's totally fine for me to see their prices and say, good for them. That's not in alignment for me. And I think that's coming back to trusting the divine feminine, even in business, to, to know when it's time to do something with my prices, with the investment, that I will know it and I'll feel it aligned and I will know when that is time. Yeah. So trusting my intuition, even with my prices. Well, I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that you feel now like it's okay for you to want nice things. Yeah. What is something nice that you have maybe gotten for yourself or your family that you wouldn't have two or three years ago or wouldn't have felt okay with? I do get lattes at my favorite coffee shop in town now every day um, because I have a home office, but as an extreme extrovert, if I'm not Zooming with a client, I do like to work and create in the energy of other humans. So I go to this local coffee shop. I invest in them to pamper me, to bring me a coffee, to let me sit in their high energy space. And so that was something as a minister I would have never done. I would have thought, this is not me being a good steward. I could make coffee at home. There's no need for me to pay it for here. But that has been a switch to, I love this business. I love the owner. I love what they're creating for our community. It's a nook that fosters deep conversations. I want to support this space for my community and selfishly for myself. So I'm going to definitely overpay you for a latte <laughs> to enjoy this whole experience. <laughs> I felt like when I published my dissertation, I probably should have acknowledged the coffee shop mm, where mm -hmm. most of it got written and edited. Uh, they were a pivotal <laughs> part of my finishing that thing. So Yes, yes. Well, Meg, you mentioned ministry, that you had been in ministry, and when you were there, maybe you wouldn't have indulged in, in a coffee for yourself like this. But can you tell us a little bit about how and why you got into ministry? Oh, yes, 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 yes. When I was 13, preached my first sermon. It was exegetically lacking. Um, it was over Proverbs <laughs> 17, 22. And I, a cheerful heart is good medicine. And I shared the take-home point as a 13-year-old was the more that we look for blessings, the more we'll realize we are actually blessed and uh, very blessed. And then I ended the sermon by singing Bing Crosby's song. When I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings instead of sheep, you know, from White Christmas, because that makes sense at the end of a sermon. Anyway, so in that moment, I received... That message served me. I needed it for my own healing as a teenager. But also that moment led to lots of applause and lots of affirmation and lots of validation and attention, things I, in that season of my family's life, I wasn't getting. And I'm thankful that the church as my supplemental family met that need. Anyway, but when I was 16, I was on a Christless retreat, a life-changing moment, a Christless three-day weekend spiritual retreat for teenagers. And it was, in, it was at that time I was praying in the sanctuary late at night. And I was alone in the sanctuary. And I felt this quiet whisper on my heart that I made you, I made you for this. And so that whisper came back again when I graduated from college and was like, do I really want to go to seminary? And then I felt that whisper again, like I made you for this. And it was, it was clear as day 
I speak English as my primary language. So to me, it was English in that moment. And it, it was those words, I made you for this. And so um, that, was, that was the nudge that I, I surrendered to as a 16-year-old and then got to work on a church staff from age 17 to 32. I am so grateful to Meg for sharing so openly about these very intimate spiritual experiences. Of course, I introduced Meg to you as a writer and an author coach, so you know that a change is coming in her story. In my own life, I've also experienced a lot of shifts and changes around vocation and career. I began in the academic world, and I always expected that I would become a professor of a small liberal arts college. But somewhere along the way, I got the whisper to become ordained. And I have to tell you, that probably wouldn't have been my first choice. But it was a calling that I couldn't ignore. After getting ordained and getting my degree, I ended up working in a church, which I really, really loved for several years. But along the way, I also felt this desire to do something else, and that emerged eventually into this full-time spiritual and now business coaching. Callings aren't necessarily what we do or even how we do it, but they're bigger than that. They're more fulfilling than that. They are a purpose. And the purpose that I've been called to is radical healing and spiritual awakening. I can do that as a pastor, and I can do that as a coach, I can do that as a business owner, and who knows what is going to come in the future. But you know the one place I ironically couldn't do that as effectively? It was in the classroom, at least not in the way that I wanted to. Being open to spiritual guidance and my own inner desires has led me to this amazing place where I love the people that I work with and I love what I get to do every day. But it's really far from where I was 15 years ago. Yet, I have been fulfilling my calling all along the way, no matter what vocation I'm in. I couldn't be more thrilled. So I got really curious. What caused the shift for Meg from full-time church worker to full-time author's coach? My first book came out in 2017, and as books do, the book led to being invited to speak, like little conference workshops, and began coaching through the international network of children's ministry and about professional sustainability, preventing burnout and compassion fatigue in ministers. So my coaching and the speaking, what they were, those opportunities were growing, and I was feeling more drawn to them than local church ministry. So I felt a nudge. Now I know that that was my, my intuition. But in 2018, I felt a nudge and even told a friend in March that I, I feel like something is coming. And I didn't, this was before your classes, of course, so I, I didn't even know to put the word intuition on it or that my spirit guides were, that I just felt something is coming. And so I, I told my senior pastor my plans and what I was feeling. So I dove straight into marketing and I went to a friend of mine that worked for the Institute for Discipleship, and he'd been a family friend of mine since I was 12. And like they say, let your connections get you places and your reputation keep you there. So in 18, I went to him and I said, I need a bridge. I need like something for one to two years because I feel I want to be a full-time coach and I want to help people who, like me, have a really helpful book that they want to serve others with, but their religious indoctrinations around marketing and around following their bliss and around money are holding them back from writing their book. I want to help those people because I've been there. I've, I'm in the trenches with them, those spiritually attuned go-getters. 
but I need just something to hold me over for two years. So I was a director of engagement for two years and learned so much about marketing through the Institute for Discipleship. And I trained Christian online course creators how to market their courses while on the side began coaching authors. And I did, I did my business on the side since 2020 and then went full time a year ago. Like I mentioned before, I got to witness Meg's transition from worker bee into full-time writing coach. Meg's energy is amazing, and she's a marketing superstar. Her clients consistently land big with their books, and she has a particular niche that I know you'll love. So Meg, tell us what drew you to being a writing coach. You went from minister to marketing director of this institute and then a writing coach. What about this this particular niche drew you in? I believe some of the most healing effective, helpful books, those books that change our lives and there are tear stains on the books and we've dog-eared it and we've highlighted it. It's on our bedside table, even though we read it five months ago. I think those kind of life-transforming books, like one of mine is Ruby Wax, A Mindfulness Guide for the Frazzled. Those kind of books, I believe, are in the hearts of those who were also raised in very religious settings. And I want to help birth those books. When we own our power as a co-creator with the divine, there is something highly spiritual, mystical, magical, divine about creativity. So the book birthing process, it, it in itself is holy, holy ground. So how I got into it was when I went to seminary, I chose one that would let me study a lot of pastoral care and curriculum writing. So I've always loved how the brain works and how different brains work and how could I craft a sermon or a lesson that would honor everyone's learning style at, at one point in the sermon or the lesson. And my writing has been, goodness, my greatest love. Is that safe to say? I think so. Yes. I asked myself, okay, what is something you can do and totally lose all track of time, totally laugh and and feel bliss and feel turned on? Because we know in the sacral chakra that that is where creativity and sexuality live. So there is this arousal feeling when you are creating that which your soul wants to create. Like, where do, where do I feel that? And I don't care if no one ever sees it and applauds for me. And that that was writing. That's always been writing for me. So um, those, those desires, those following those breadcrumbs over the years or looking back and connecting the dots at how God and my guides were leading me led me to, but I think that, I don't think I said this before, but after the first book came out, so many, so many people were reaching out to me that were fellow ministers. And it was like, they were almost ashamed that they had this book idea. They're like, hey, can I, can I tell you something? <laughs> like they were, I have this, I've learned to write this for five years. But yes, yeah, so a lot of that was happening as the idea of starting my own business was percolating where people with needs were coming up that my gifts and my joy aligned with, and I, I couldn't wait to serve them. Meg, I love what you had to say about the writing process being divine and that in this, probably in any kind of creation process, but especially in writing, you know, I, we're creating something and mimicking or participating in the same kind of creative process that maybe God had when God created the universe. And I'm curious if that enters into your thought process or if I'm, maybe I'm way off base. I would definitely agree with that. And I feel that there's such a beautiful honor and responsibility that we don't carry that lightly when we, when we craft the experience of our books. Yes, all the same, all the same energy. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And that creating something 
wild and free and orderly out of chaos. I mean, literally out of nothingness almost. That it strikes me that the writing process really resembles that those first couple of verses of Genesis where God is also making in fashioning something that we can see and touch and feel out of chaos. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I love it so much when clients have lots of pieces and like, I don't even know. I don't like it's our first session together. I don't know if this is a book or three books. Like, where do all these pieces go? And then in our six or 12 months together, we we strategically intentionally place the pieces together in a readable, relatable, retainable, highly marketable format. So tell us what you do with someone over the course of those six months or a year. So I won't go into great detail because we don't have all day. But the first step is we transcend limiting filters because what holds writers back the most is usually a limiting belief around their own talent, their time, or their target audience. And so we dive deep into that through unconventional fun methods like meditation and journaling, taking a field trip under a tree, not writing, but using the Otter app to speak a chapter into being instead of writing it. So we transcend limiting filters. Number two, we establish a routine. So we take a deep dive into the personality and the learning style of the author and then their life stage. And then based on those things, we create together a routine. When then we make a word count goal based on are you going to write daily? Are you going to write one night a week? Are you going to binge write once a month? There's lots of right ways to write. There's three parties involved in birthing a book. The divine moves through the awesome author. The divine moves through me as the coach and the divine moves through the book itself. Like there is divine energy in that idea that has chosen you to birth it. So we honor all three parties and how the divine moves and we get clear on who is your ideal reader and then how does your book want to tell its story? And so step number four, writing the book, I create a template along with a client that is readable, retainable, relatable, highly marketable based on neurological research about how people learn. And then the last two steps are I bring in my multimedia artist, Heather, who makes it a true partnership for the author to create their book cover design. And then my other partner, Brent, is a literary service provider, and he does all the copy line editing, and then all the formatting and uploading, everything setting up your royalties on KDP. And then of course, the last step is we market the book. We guarantee a bestseller on Amazon and we equip the author and we build their brand with them. And we do email marketing, a whole online facelift. They become a master at, at, their, at serving people, their ideal reader organically and authentically with social media marketing. So we've crafted the ideal experience for authors where instead of keeping 6 to 20% of the royalties, like most publishing, traditional publishing companies, they keep 40 to 70% of the royalties. That is amazing. I did not know about the 40 to 70%. That's crazy abundance for writers that is so unusual. Mm, yes. So you're holding a lot of space for writers really from the very beginning until the very, very end and, and beyond for their book. How does your personal spirituality impact your business as a writing coach? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I am nothing without my morning. And when I miss it, I feel it. I love to, I use tarot cards thanks to your courses. Not every day, probably 
probably two or three times a week, I will be with the cards. I do breath work and meditation on the Insight Timer app. Breath work has been huge for me to get back the divine feminine is in the body. And I feel sometimes we as go-getters, we have forgotten how to be in our body. And so meditation is amazing, 100%, obviously. And breath work gets me back in my body and it moves that anxious energy really, really well for me. And then I journal in the morning. And so I like to have, I'm, 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 I'm a mom and a wife. And so the success of showing up well to my clients, my husband and my offspring, the success is at my kitchen table an hour before the rest of the family wakes up. So 100%. And then I think another spiritual discipline that's right up there with that is being very, very careful with protecting my emotional energy. So not to sound like a holy roller, but being very careful with what am I watching? What am I listening to? Where is this conversation going? Do I really want to be in this conversation or am I just being polite? Like being very, very particular, <laughs> Some, a very, just very particular with, with how I'm spending my emotional energy. And what do you think of when I say being in alignment? What does that mean to you? Ooh, this is a fun question. When I think of the word alignment, I have to first say that I believe every soul, every human in our, in our, or on our earthly plane has a different, their soul has a different curricula. We all have different lessons that we're here to learn, and we all choose different types of curriculum to explore those lessons. So it's, it's totally okay if what I'm about to say doesn't land for, for a listener. And that is that I do believe that my soul has been here before on earth. And this time around, there was something that I agreed to do. Catherine McGowan, she writes about the Lord's Prayer and how we all have a promise to God and we intuitively know what that is. And I love that. And I feel that in my soul that that feels like truth to me. So I know that I'm in alignment when I do feel even in the hardest of days, like when I'm transferring all my bookkeeping over to a new software and I'm not a detail-oriented person, <laughs> but I have to do it because it's my business. Even in those moments, there, even when it gets hard, there is this inner knowing of, yes, but I was made for this. Yes, but I promised God I'd do this. And those feelings of alignment, of, of joy, of sustainability, of grit, even when it's hard. And from your courses, learning about these synchronicities that we see throughout our day that affirm, I receive them as uh, affirmation. I love it. And even something like transferring your bookkeeping over, I mean, who wants to do that? No one in their right mind could possibly want to switch <laughs> software for their bookkeeping. That sounds so hard. But even doing that, you can do it from a place of intention for alignment, or you can do it from a place of, of anxiety and chaos. Oh, well said. Yes. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Before we wrap up, Meg, do you have any advice or wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. There's a huge chance that someone listening wants to write a book and has an idea on their heart. It's probably been there for about five to seven years. There is also a big chance that inside their, their heads, they're thinking of someone that they're afraid that they're going to embarrass or hurt or someone that if I write this book, that person's going to lose respect for me. That person's going to disown me. That person's going to think less of me. That person's not going to be impressed with me. There's a big chance that is going on within them. And that is a huge and very normal cause for writer's block. And there's also a huge chance that 
even though writers become clear on their ideal audience member at different times of the writing journey, it's a 99% chance (laughs) that the person who's the loudest in your head, that critic, there's a ginormous chance that person is not your target audience, is not your ideal reader. And you're probably thinking, well, Meg, that doesn't really help me that much. So what do I do with that information? So I think I share that as advice because it's very, very, very common, very common. And with the amazingly talented and kind and creative writers I get to serve, we go through the steps to remove that block and get clear on our ideal audience member. And so to partner, to normalize that, and then to supplement what I just said, I will, I will quote another book. It's a wonderful book called Happy Pocketful of Money. And in that book, <laughs> it talks about quantum physics and it talks about 1 John 1.10 that prays for oneness and Jesus is praying to the Father for oneness and how this author of Happy Pocketful of Money interprets that and shares about quantum physics is that we are all connected and thought leads to energy. And the, the fact that you, dear listener, are a person of integrity, you are in alignment with serving others with your book. The fact that the idea is talking to you continually, continually talking to you, it is there for two reasons, two equally important reasons. The first is to give you the joy and the pleasure of co-creating the book. And secondly, to serve someone outside of you that's desperately been waiting for someone with your experience, your style, your unique perspective, your scars. I love that Nadia Bowles-Weber quote, teach from your scars, do not teach from your wounds. There is someone out there who's waiting for you to write the book. And that's why the book won't shut up inside of you. It, It wants to serve other people through you. And so there's such great power as writers in getting in tune with, okay, whose voice is that inside my head, that critic from my past that I'm afraid that I'm going to lose their love or their respect? Okay. And getting clear on, is that my target audience? Most likely it's not. And then, and then receiving the truth that because the idea is within you, it is there because someone outside of you wants to be served by your book. And that book's going to keep talking to you. It is not going to be quiet. (laughs) That was so great, Meg. Thank you so much for being here. What is the best way for people to find you? If you go to megcalvin.com, there's a 20-minute free training video that is three ways to market your book, three ways to make marketing your book more fun and less frustrating at at megcalvin.com. And you can get that training to empower your, as you build your brand as a writer. Oh, I am on the socials. And so, hey, Meg Calvin on Instagram, and then Meg Calvin on Facebook, and Meg Calvin on TikTok. And I'd love, 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 love to stay connected with you on your writing journey. I'm Katie Valentine, and you've been listening to Soul Savvy Business. Soul Savvy Business is part of the Miracy FM Podcast Network, which also includes shows like Just Between Coaches and Once Upon a Business. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. I wrote this episode with Melissa Deal and Cynthia. Melissa assembled the episode, Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was by Post Office Sound. To make sure you don't miss great episodes coming up on Soul Savvy Business, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please give us a starred review. It is the best way to help us get these ideas out there to more people. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.